across the city and South Cambridgeshire. On FM, digital and your mobile. Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm going to read you the menu. It's fantastic. So we get better flavour because of the fen soil. I've drunk more beer since I came here and bought my two barrels than I've ever done in my life before, I think. I shouldn't have said almonds. They don't make it from almonds. <laughs> so you've got this big sticky mess when you start off. Pizza pot pies! My wife's cakes are selling up hot cakes. Brilliant, thank you. The time is right for this sort of thing. Food is everything. Cambridge is right for this sort of thing. What's it like? Delicious. <laughs> Good afternoon, welcome to Flavour, an hour of food and drink news and stories with Alan Alder, Sue Bailey and me, Matt Bentman. Today on Flavour, we hear from the councillor with responsibility for Cambridge Market about the plans for its redevelopment. The foraging chef, Steve Thompson, is in the final 10 of 500 chefs in the Tasting Spoon Chef of the Year competition. He tells us all about it and later in the programme he returns with tips for March foraging. The Finn boys are hard at work getting their shop-come-restaurant The Fish Butchery ready. We take a look at how it's coming along and when it's likely to open. We talk with a Syrian refugee who, since arriving in this country, has trained as a chef at Vanderlyle and Ottolenghi and worked at London's Honey & Co. And he's now back in Cambridge cooking for deliveries and collections. And we have lots of food news too and a bumper selection of jobs. First, though, recent news about Cambridge Market has been focused on its closure and partial reopening. But there is more long-term news, too, about a possible redevelopment of the Market Square. I asked Councillor Rosie Moore, who has responsibility for the market, about what it's likely to involve. So our plans are to shift the layout through 90 degrees so that the stalls run across and to leave a bit more of a gap in the middle around the fountain and to add some tables and chairs so that people who use the market are able to sit out, but also to give it a bit more of a feeling of a, an open space. If you do that, if you put those benches and create more space around the around the fountain. Where will the market, the periphery, be? If because well, we would be sort of reducing the road uh, width slightly. The plan currently is to have an underground bin store, so uh, there wouldn't need to be the compactor. So that would give a bit of space overground, and also uh, would uh, just look more attractive. So I think the new proposals. They essentially have the same number of stalls. I think we might be losing one or two. That's also because each stall would be slightly bigger. So the new proposed plans are for each stall to be slightly bigger, but also for the awning to cover a little bit of where the shopper would stand so that if it's raining, they would be protected. So it's not going to have a big roof over everybody so that it would still be open in the aisles. But when people are at stalls, there would be a bit of cover from the weather. They'd be slightly bigger and also the aim is for them to be movable. Not that they would be moved daily, but just on certain occasions when we wanted to create more space in the square. So you're looking at the possibility of using the market square more for events as well then? We don't have any clear plans to have events. It's more just to 
make sure that the work that we do is future proof so that we could use the space in the evenings if we wanted to. The main aim of this project is to continue to have a seven day a week market. So any events would need to fit around that. So we have our night markets and our film shows throughout the summer. Obviously, we didn't last year, but we're hoping to have them again this year. So it's just for events like that to have a bit more space. The square is in need of some work doing on it. For example, the cobbled area in the middle, it's very uneven. The cobbles are quite difficult to walk on, particularly anyone with mobility issues or with a buggy or a wheelchair. The electrics that the traders use are old and they need updating so at the moment we can't have the food stalls all in one place because it would blow the electric so they need to be all dotted around also there's not a kind of clear food area um, so it's not so easy for people that just want takeaway food to see what's on offer the road is very obvious and not much traffic uses it but it really looks like a road so it leaves you feeling a little bit uncomfortable to stand in the middle of it so if we could just change that uh have a, a an even surface one where the highway wasn't segregated obviously that it's done in a safe way for when we do need to have vehicles on it for example the bin lorries and deliveries to surrounding shops I just think it would improve the look and feel. Is the road going to stay at a level below the pavement? Because I feel that's part of the reason why the market feels that it's on an island, you know, surrounded by road, because, because partly because of the colour of the road is so stark, but also because it's, you know, it's on a, a different level. Is there any possibility of changing that? So it will still be slightly lower, but the difference will be less and it will blend in more. It's about getting a balance between it looking less like a road when we don't want it to be, but it being safe, particularly for anyone with sight uh, difficulties when there are vehicles on it. So we're looking at different solutions yeah. and also it will be slightly narrower. We also need to update the bins we've got that big compactor so it'd be nice to get rid of that and have the bins underground if possible the toilets and the facilities that the traders use underground they need some work doing so it just seems like a really good time to do uh, all of the work that's needed to be done in one project and to look at what we can do to improve it the, the the feasibility studies that the the council commissioned has got some quite radical proposals. I mean, one of them has the market stretching onto the the pavement in front of the Guildhall, for example. Uh, so, is that those the more radical ideas then aren't likely to to happen? From what you're saying. No, we went with a more, I would say we're not really changing too much about the market. We're just updating it so that it can have a guaranteed future. Um, maybe the only really new thing is uh, the stalls being movable, but we still want them to be sturdy and strong. So there'll be metal structures uh, that for most of the year will be in place. The stakeholders that you interviewed in um, November uh, were very 
proud of where the market is, right really at the, the centre of, of, of the city. And I know there's a lot of nervousness about the market. Uh, you will know that better than I. So we can sort of put to rest ideas that it's being moved to Drummer Street then, because that was yes, an idea that, that people were coming up with. That we that was a discussion that when we were commissioning this project for the scope of it, uh, we said, did we want to consider moving it to a different location? And we said, no, we didn't. We were only looking at the market being in the market square. So that was uh, at the very beginning of this project, a decision that we made, that the city council wants to run a market in the market square and to keep the, the traders that we have and to keep it going into the future. There will obviously need to be a period of time where the market needs to be moved to do the flooring. I would say that even if we didn't do this project, uh, at some point the floor needs to be relayed. So whatever happens, that, that piece of work will need to be done. Well, it'll be a difficult period, but once we're over that, it'll, um, the market will be able to go from strength to strength into the future. Some people are very protective, aren't they, about the cobbles? They don't want the cobbles replaced. So will the cobbles be replaced? So the cobbles have been listed. So the current plan, obviously all of these things, we are going out to consultation, but the current plan is for every cobble to be, I'm not quite sure how they do it, whether it's a, a layer is sliced off or whether it's sort of ground flat and then relayed but so that it's a flat surface. So it will look virtually the same, it'll look similar, but it'll be flat, which will make it easier to walk on and also much easier to keep clean. Obviously it's very, it's an anxious time for traders to have this project, not knowing when it's going to happen, if it's going to happen. There will, as I say, there will need to be this period of time where we have to relay the flooring. So we'll need to move uh, the market. So I can understand that that's quite stressful. Also, councils usually move at quite a slow pace. People have thought that there are things going on in the background that they're not privy to. And it doesn't mean that. It just means that councils move at quite a slow pace and the pandemic has uh, slowed things down a little bit. Apart yeah. from that, I think the main worry is over the stalls being movable, that they won't be as sturdy. Um, our aim is for them to be sturdy. We're having a prototype made. Um, and so we hope to be able to have that uh, for people to see when we're doing the consultation. When the market has to move for the changes to take place, where will it move to? That we haven't decided that yet. What are the next stages then? What, what, what consultations are going to be happening? We're taking this to committee on the 25th of March, assuming that the committee approves. It will then go out to public consultation. Unfortunately, because we've got local elections, it can't uh, happen immediately um, because we have a period of purda. After that, then it will be able to go out to public consultation. And hopefully uh, we'll have lots of responses because it's a really vital part of our city centre. 
assuming that it goes ahead. Have you any idea when it might, when the work might start and when the work might be finished? We would then need to go to the next stage, which is on the technical and more detailed design. We also don't know yet how we're going to pay for it. We're hoping that we will be able to get, uh, maybe apply for some grants or to get some funding to support it. So we're still quite a long way off. Right. I mean, what are we looking at, do you think? Two years, five years? Difficult to say. (laughs) (laughs) One of the drawbacks in living in a beautiful historic city like Cambridge is that change, especially to something as historic as the market, tends to be slow. So we'll have to be patient, unfortunately. But I do think that something needs to be done, if only it could be done more quickly. And I hope funding can be found too. That was Councillor Rosie Moore. Okay, on to our first news break now, and with some street food updates. Pimp My Fish is at Trumpington Meadows tomorrow, Sunday, from 12 till 3. The Italian restaurant on Regent Street, De Luca Cucina, has a free Prosecco offer this weekend, that's 13th to 14th of March, if you place an order with them for four people and two courses. Let's spoil our mothers, they say. At Clay Farm in Trumpington, tonight, Saturday, Wandering Yak. Tuesday night, Pizza Passioni. Wednesday, Sam's Thai. Thursday, Apple Jalapeno. Friday, Azahar's Spanish Food. And next Saturday, Vonnie's Balkan Express. Bagel Box on Cambridge Market has now restarted sales of bagels and fillings. Alex Richards can be found on the market on Tuesday, Wednesdays and Sundays. Details of home and office deliveries are on the Bagel Box website. The hot food traders on Cambridge Market are desperate to return to business as well. An online petition has been set up by Raphael, who makes delicious vegetarian Spanish food on the market. And if you would like to add your name to the list, you can find it on change.org and search for Hot Food Traders Back to Cambridge Market. And speaking of the market, I've had two of the nicest cheeses ever this week, both from Roberto's, uh, which is on the market uh, every day except Friday. One was a gorgonzola. He has two types and this was the stronger one. And the other was a soft goat cheese. And I've had lots of soft goat cheeses in my life but none as good as this one Uh, it's in the chiller at the front of his stall and on the subject of cheese culinaris in mill road has just got the first wild garlic labousse of the season it's made with fresh wild garlic and is available for a couple of weeks only buy it in the shop or deliver or collect via culinaris's web shop Restaurant 22 is doing takeaways to cook at home. They're available for the 26th and 27th of March, and on those dates they will be vegetarian meals. And then back to omnivorous offerings on the 7th and 3rd of April and the 9th and 10th of April. Now bookings for all of those dates open on the Thursday, one week in advance. It's easy to miss out on takeaway foods from Restaurant 22 and Vandalisle because they sell out very quickly. But one place whose food is also superb and which is easy to order from is Rice Boat, the Carolyn restaurant in Newnham Road. I had a meal from them last week and it was superb. They prefer you to have your order in by four o'clock on the day you want it, which is pretty good, and you order by phone or email. You can pick up or they'll deliver. The menu and ordering details are on their website, which is riceboat.co.uk. And it's evident when you eat a meal from Riceboat how well cooked it is and how good the ingredients are. And I asked Rita how she sourced the ingredients. 
Um, yes, I mean, the chicken actually we buy locally in Cambridge, uh, but the more iconic fish, like the kingfish, we buy from Billingsgate Market in London. Well, where's, king, where's kingfish from? Um, it's fished between the waters between Sri Lanka and India, right. so on the east coast, yeah. but we get it all around the waters in India, in southern India, uh, hence why in Kerala it's the best fish. Uh, the fish for the, the you know for the best occasions uh, would be a kingfish, and they're huge. I mean, each piece that I buy is about eighteen twenty kilos, a single fish, and we bring it back fresh and it's filleted uh, to go into the curries. It's sometimes a bit tricky getting the fish. Yes, uh, and so you get, and you go to Billingsgate for it. Yeah. So do you, do you do you travel widely to get good? Uh, yes, I mean it's crack at dawn. You know, I'm up at half four and I leave at half five. Uh, to do the shopping run, which also then extends to the east end of London for the pulses and the lentils and the vegetables from New Spitterfield Market in Leytonstone. So, um, so it's usually the fish market first, then Spitterfields, uh, and then the east end for the spices. Uh, and the lentils. Right. And, why, uh, why do you go to London for spices? I mean, you can um, buy spices in Cambridge. Uh, you don't get the exact brand that we want. We want the southern Indian brands, which are not, uh, you know, uh, easily found in Cambridge. And also, we go to some very small shops in the East End as well for uh, small, peculiar items that are specially, you know, brought in from Kerala, like the, uh, the fish tamarind which goes into the redfish curry. It's like a, a claw-like, looks like a piece of black charcoal-like tamarind, and that imparts a really smokiness to the curry, which just makes that curry very distinctive. And mm. that you have to go to a, a specialist, you know, specialist small shop there in East Ham uh, for me to source that. So it's an all-day, it's an all-day trip. The Finn boys, Richard Stokes and Jay Scrimshaw, are at work fitting their shop-come-restaurant, The Fish Butchery, on Mill Road. Alan popped along on Tuesday and he asked Richard how it was going and when they will be open. Well, we've got all the framework in for the shop now and we're just busy getting the tiles all done for the kitchen. Those, those tiles are amazing. They look like fish scales. Yeah, fish <laughs> scale tiles, yeah. Especially uh, chosen. Yes, yeah, very lucky to find those. Lots of the shelving here. What a shopping, we're going to have um, a, a fish counter here along this wall. That's uh, up to the window. Up to the window, yeah, yeah. with a fish fridge. That's where we're going to have all the raw fish will be prepared and wrapped um, for all the customers. Our dried fridges will be here, and then deli section as well. So, so that's further away into yeah, the, into the, the shop, restaurant. And yeah. we're going to have a grab-and-go fridge in this other large recess here. And then this side is where the bar's going to be brought in, hopefully next week. And that'll be all fitted. Yeah enough space for, say, 18 chairs along here. So a large oak top is coming in, about three pieces, because it's a massive piece of wood. So a bit like Barafina, then, uh, eating, at the, eating at the bar? Yeah, I guess so, yeah. 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 And the flooring's going in as well? Yep. The whole place looks bigger. It's a big space. I think it's probably the biggest shop on, on Mill Road, I would have thought. So the big question, any idea when you'll be finished and ready to open? Sometime in April. People can come in and yep, take away. Retail will be we'll be selling wet fish and shellfish, hopefully from from mid April. And in the meantime, we can get stuff online from the Finn boys. Yes, indeed. Yeah, though we have taken we're taking this this week off just so we can get some painting done um, and, and get a little bit more ahead in the shop. But um, 
yeah for, again from from week after next we'll probably be doing the boxes again yeah great okay thank you very much thank Richard. You, thanks and that was richard stokes and we look forward to his opening enormously and we have news from steve thompson the foraging chef he has reached stage two of the tasting spoon awards chef of the year competition i asked him about it earlier in the week we started off having to enter in a start remaining dessert they were judged, I think, whittled down from just under 500 people down to 10. We got through that round nicely. You can see all the dishes on my Instagram. So we did like a wild duck bolognese dish with nettles and pine cured heart and liver jam. Um, we did a nice little vegan main course, toasted yeast gnocchi. We had some chickweed on there and coffee and celeriacs. And then finished for dessert with a dish that we spoke about last time, actually, which was the Alder Catkin Sponge Pudding. So that was really nice. You can see all of those on our Instagram. And then the next round, which we're through to now, is a couple of rounds of interviews. So there's some interviews, and then we had to do a signature dish as well, which is really fun, and talk about that and kind of explain where we're going with it and our ethos and just kind of get to know us a bit more. So again, if you go onto Tasting Spoon's Instagram, or I think it's in my story at the moment, you can find the two parts of that interview and hear a bit more. The dish is also up on my Instagram as well. So what we did there is a caramelised white chocolate mousse, um, we wanted to do a nice dessert, basically, actually. The brief for it was to do something that was summery. So it's going to be cooked off in the final if you get through, which is in sort of June time. So, yeah, we did caramelised white chocolate mousse with candied asparagus, green pine cone treacle parfait, some ash from pine, made out of pine, and salted unripe plum butterscotch. But if you ever listen to the interview, I kind of go into all the flavours and how they pair together and how it works and how it's not actually as weird and wonderful as it seems. The idea of having asparagus as part of a dessert is an intriguing one. What made you think of that? It's got such a lovely, sweet, fresh pea flavour to it. So we do it in two different ways. So we get the cooked element of the asparagus flavour through by candying it. So obviously boiling it down in syrup and then drying it out and coating it in sugar. We do similar things with like Alexander stems and a lot of the wild stems we use. And then to finish the whole dish at the end, we had the pine ash over the top, but then we also had some, we froze some fresh asparagus and then grated that over the top of the dish to really get that fresh pea flavour through. So, yeah, you've kind of got both sides of it, and it kind of is what brings everything together. So the earthy green, fresh penis, it really works with the nutty of the white chocolate, hence why we caramelise it and everything like that. But we go into much more detail in the interview with it. Mm. I think they're interviewing people every Sunday, two chefs, throughout March. So we should know the next round, I imagine, beginning of April sort of time. And then each round, there's a round each month if you get through. So two people go out of this one, so then it'll be down to eight chefs, and vice versa each month, basically. I think the next round after this is they send a box to you at home and you have to create something out of that box. And then I believe after that round, then it's cooking in a kitchen with it all. So For real, which you should be able to do. Yeah, yeah that'd be much nicer. That's much more my comfort zone. It's, it's nice doing these things like this, but you kind of almost have to take my word for it, especially with my food where people don't often know the flavours, they're not familiar. They're very much taking my word on how I talk about it, how passionately I talk about it and the execution that you can see from the dishes so it'd be nice to actually cook for people and then mm. see where that goes well they certainly look beautiful on Instagram they're really amazing yeah they're lovely dishes and they taste as good as they look we're not one of those ones that like to just do it for the hell of it but it will be nice when we can actually cook properly for oh. people again and Steve will be on the program a little later with the March edition of his guide to local foraging
Here's where we bring you details of free food available now in and around Cambridge. The information about what's available and where to get it comes from the Olio app, which is free to download. And some examples of what's been recently available locally on the Olio app includes jars of Seville orange marmalade and Bon Maman apricot conserve, flora plant butter, 31 filled baguettes and 28 sandwiches and toasties from Pret-a-Manger, and also some bananas and leeks. And another free app called Too Good To Go has unsold food from restaurants, cafes and shops, often at less than half price. And these include Costa Coffee, the Ibis Hotel by the station, Cambridge Oven in Hills Road, Eclipse Bakery in Mill Road and lots of others. Uh, Rather than specifying each leftover item, the surplus food is simply packaged as a magic bag, ready for you to take home instead of being binned at the end of the day's trading. Of course, magic bags differ according to the business selling them. But as an example, one very happy Too Good To Go user recently tweeted a photo of her magic bag, and it contained eight pork sausages, a bag of carrots, a tuna and sweet corn sandwich, a New York-style salt beef deli bagel, a tub of Italian mozzarella and tomatoes, new potato, tomato and egg salad, a tub of pineapple, grape and melon pieces, and a Greek-style yogurt with cranberries and pumpkin seeds. Now, all of this lot, £4. I wish it had existed when I was a student, she said. £4. Well, it's Lent, and here we are talking about food and drink too a little later on. It's difficult to do a vox pop at the moment. People are apt to run a mile if you get too close, and a good thing too. But a few years ago, when we didn't have these fears... Alan asked a few people in Cambridge's Market Square if they'd give anything up. Are you giving up anything for Lent? Yes, I'm going to give up work. <laughs> you can afford to, can you? <laughs> yeah, I make millions here. I'm pleased to hear it. Thank Thanks. You. No. <laughs> in short, I'm always trying not to eat so much. But not, not especially not at Lent. Something specifically for Lent. We're not no. religious. I haven't really thought about Lent yet because I haven't had my pancakes yet from yesterday. So you're a bit behind, really? I certainly am a bit behind. So your Lent will overrun them, will it, into Easter? Yes, my Lent will, and I I will consider what I'm going to do, but um, just be a better person, I'm sure that's the thing to do, isn't it? Yeah. Right. What have you given up for Lent, man? Well, I haven't decided yet. What, what, what have you given up? What well, this young man's going to ask you. Yeah, so I'm, <laughs> I'm from Cambridge 105 Radio. I was going to ask you if you've given up anything for Lent. I'm intending to give up um, working as hard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good luck with that. Yeah. I'm, I'm from Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm asking people if they've given up anything for Lent. No, I'm afraid I haven't. <laughs> I never do. I'm sorry. No, it sounds very irreligious, doesn't it? Very religious. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'm probably going to give up chocolate. Will that be much of a hardship for you? Oh, yes. Could I ask you if you've given up anything for Lent? I've given up chocolate. That's a, a sort of standard thing that I regularly do. And then I also try and push my life towards thinking of others. I've given up alcohol for Lent. Is that a struggle? Well, it, it'll be, it, it's quite a, it is quite a struggle, yes, because I would normally have some wine with my main meal every day. So it's, um, it's an important step, I think. I was going to say, I have a friend of mine who gave up her New Year's resolutions for Lent. <laughs> um, I've I've actually given up alcohol and I'm adding in 10 minutes of silence to each day as well. 
So, I'm from Cambridge 105 Radio. Can Hi, I ask mate. you if you've given up anything for Lent? Yeah, yeah, I've given up pork for Lent. <laughs> That's it, because I eat too much uh, bacon and sausages. Oh, it, doesn't bode, it doesn't bode well with the training. That's all it is. <laughs> Thank you very much. Excuse me, I'm, I'm from uh, Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm asking people if they've given up anything for Lent. Lent? Do you not do Lent? No. Okay. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you. 220. I'm afraid I have. Do you feel bad about it? I do, actually, yes. <laughs> but, but you're not going to. No, I'm not going to. <laughs> and did you spot the two who were men of the cloth in that Vox Pop? Last Sunday, I went to the Sunday market, as I always do, and I was delighted to see that Claire on the Brownsfield farm stall had some forced rhubarb. The price was good too. And if you're as thrilled by rhubarb's return as I am, here's a piece from the archives in which Nazima Pathan talks about ways of enjoying rhubarb. It's um, a great thing to use both in savoury and sweet dishes, um, great accompaniment to game meat such as duck. If you were to make a compote with it, I, if it was me, I would probably spice it with some star anise and, and, and other winter type of spices and and then serve it alongside some uh, some duck breast, maybe with a red wine reduction. In terms of sweet, obviously preserving it is a good idea and, and both curd or preserves, it'll be a, a really good uh, way to keep that pink colour. We also like poaching it. Now one of the things about cooking with with forced rhubarb is that when you cook it sometimes it will lose its colour a bit so a good way to do it is either to to bake it or, or to poach it in a sous vide type uh, equipment so if you've got some vacuum bags or some bags and then poach it in water you don't need a sous vide machine really you could put it in a slow cooker but if you can put it inside a bag and a sealed bag with and get the air out and then cook it low and slow with the syrup inside it will retain to retain that bright pink color and that's something we did at a supper club a while back where we did some mi foy um, with a rhubarb and a cardamom cream we actually had cooked the rhubarb in that way so that it remained a very bright pink. And did it retain its shape or is that yeah, a Yes, so by of... doing it that way, you will it will retain because otherwise obviously it can get mushy. Yes. So you have to be very careful and so a great way if you want to keep that nice shape is to poach it till it's just just right and then if you wanted to put it in a tart for example then lay them um, gently onto the pastry base and bake it. But I think cooking it in a pouch sous vide it, or in a in a slow cooker in in some in a water bath essentially is a great way to keep the colour. Of course, not everybody has such a thing, but but you can do it without without that as long as you can just keep it simmering, for example. But as long as you've got a, a, yeah. a bag that you can put put it in any food yeah. food grade bag. And you can cook rhubarb without actually adding any liquid to it, can't yes, you? Yes, yeah. So it will it will break down quite easily, and so it makes for, for a great compote. And one of the things, apart from the usual cinnamon and orange juice, which are great flavours to go with it, is cardamom goes very nicely. And we've done a compote with cardamom in, and sugar in a uh, with, for rhubarb, which we we served um, with a jasmine rice panna cotta, where we cooked the rice in milk and then used that milk, discarded the rice, and used the milk to make a panna cotta. So it had a very nice, delicate flavour to go with the sort of sour but um, slightly warm uh, cardamom flavour of the um, of the compote. Uh, Nigella Lawson has a great one that I've also done as well, um, which is to put it instead of a lemon curd tart to make a, a rhubarb curd tart, and it, that's delicious. I think the, the sort of tart, tartness of the rhubarb with this very sweet meringue, but light meringue, is, is really nice and uh, it's a lovely flavour. But it is important.
important, isn't it, to retain the tartness because without it, it's losing one of its well, you know essential yeah, characteristics. Yeah, I really, right. I think it's a great uh, it's a great flavour, and you definitely want that to be there. Thanks to Nazima Pathan for those suggestions. We'll be back in a couple of minutes for a bit of foraging advice and to talk with someone who's been working at Vandelisle, Ottolenghi and Honey and Co, but is now at home cooking for you. 105. Cambridge 105 Radio. Kickstart your weekend. Saturday Breakfast with Matt Webb. I'm here every weekend to get you moving. I have the latest from the Cambridge News Desk on the hour and half hour. Problems on the A14, Newmarket Road or Mill Road? Well, if there are, you'll be the first to know in the travel. There's a full sports roundup at 8.30, including what's happening at Cambridge United and our other local clubs. Plus a look at the Saturday papers and local online publications at 10 to 9. That's Saturday Breakfast with me, Matt Webb, this weekend from 8. If you're like me, you've got a family and a business, and you want to protect what's most important when the chips are down. With Woodfine Solicitors, that's exactly what happens. I got a bespoke legal service from a friendly expert team. They really listened to what was going on and tailored their recommendations to my situation, which was, well, that's another story. Anyway, the best thing was that it all happened online. A few simple clicks and I had my quote. That freed up time to focus on everything else. Get the help you need when you need it most. Visit woodfinds.co.uk or call Cambridge 411421. Woodfinds, cutting through the red tape. What does your home need to feel complete? Gap Home Improvements have been helping customers give their properties that curb appeal for over 20 years. You've seen our vans in your area providing dedicated support to families across Cambridgeshire. Windows, doors, garden rooms, conservatories and warm roofs. We offer free quotations in a pressure-free environment. In person, on the phone or by video call, our consultants will help you realise your property's true potential. Call Cambridge 914 567 or visit gaphomeimprovements.co.uk today. Welcome back to Flavour. We heard earlier from Steve Thompson, the foraging chef and head chef at the Plough in Shepworth. Now here's Steve again with some advice about what there is for foraging this month. So we're still into a lot of the spring sort of greens coming through, all your cow parsley, you see wild garlic is finally starting to come through in the South Cam's villages. I see so many people asking for spots and where to get it from. I'm not going to ever go into spots because you, everyone will just start overgoing and go walking through all the South Cam villages, all the woodland, especially the low-lying woodland with little streams through it. Follow the brooks, that kind of thing. You're going to come about some. Start going this weekend now because even the last bits is now shooting through. And just use your nose. You'll smell it before you see it half the time. So that's a good place to start. But yeah, a lot of the spring greens, something we noticed that was shooting through yesterday, actually, I was out walking in one of the woods around here, was the first shoots of Rose Bay Willow Herb which is absolutely lovely. I think we might have talked about it before, using the leaves just before it flowers, where we make Ivan's chai. We're almost fermenting the leaves. We're kind of more bruising them and leaving them to sip. We'll probably talk about that again for May time when that comes out. But what we're using at the moment is the shoots. When they come through, they're nice and tender. So they're almost like asparagus is the best way to do it. explain it. There's another one at the moment, like uh, common hogweed, which is quite like asparagus, but that's not quite through yet. So identification of Rose Bay Willow Herb, it's a little bit harder when it's smaller, but not really. I mean, the leaves is a real key identification. They've got circular veins. That means that the veins on the leaf loop, so they never actually touch the outside of the leaf. So if you look on the inside of the leaf, the veins follow the pattern and then everything else is on the inside of that. And it's quite easy to uh, 
tell from that they have elongated leaves as well and quite often have a little bit of red at the base of the leaf I know what they look like when they flower but I've never examined the leaves thank you yeah have a look next time it's, it's good to remember because then you can you rule out a lot more if you remember where your last year's patch is and that was another thing I was going to say at the moment there's a lot of last year's ones dead still but with the lovely cotton wool seeds still sat on the top so that's a great marker to see where you're going to have and they should be fresh shoots growing at the base now they're worth going back for when they flower. The flowers have got a really, really nice cranberry almost flavour to them when dried. So they're really worth using and making teas out of. Another thing that we've just noticed, they're just starting on the edge of my village at the moment, is the apple trees are starting to go into blossom. Now, it's one of my favourite fruit blossoms to use. You'll see a lot on the internet people saying don't eat too much because cyanide and blah, 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 blah. Well, cyanide's in the pips, isn't it? Yeah, it's in lots of parts of lots of plants. Um, the It's all about dosage. The amount, the amount you'd have to have is absolutely ridiculous. So use them they're lovely flavored in desserts i mean i don't tend to dry them i tend to use them fresh but i suppose you could dry them and infuse but things like panna cottas or brulees they're wonderful chucked in there into the cream mixes to infuse um, my favorite thing which we used to sell when i was back at the green man was our apple blossom and wild fennel gin and that's absolutely wonderful so for that i'd just take like a 70 centiliter bottle of gin about 10 spoons of just castor sugar good probably two handfuls of apple blossom and then literally like three or four sprigs of just wild fennel, which should start to be really just shooting through now. There's a few spots around here, but otherwise, once lockdown's released, you can get to the coast. It's everywhere on the coast. Put that in, give it a shake every day for 10 days, and then that's ready to drink, and you've got a wonderful 40% almost gin liqueur, which is just so tasty. It's one of my favourite things to do with apple blossom. That sounds really delicious. It's interesting because I've just written an article for the lady that will be coming out in April about edible flowers you do have to be careful i mean you are the sort of king of foraging knowledge but even with the garden flowers there's certain ones you must avoid yeah it's about identification i mean i think apple trees and malice and general the species are pretty simple i mean most of us know what the bark looks like most of us remember where an apple tree is true because yeah the fruit is just so iconic isn't it is there anything else that you would recommend i think the last thing worth talking about that we spotted again yesterday went out is um pig nuts and there seems to be a lot of them this year, which is really good, especially in that area. So I'm going to have to uh, go talk to that. This is the next thing. It's where you have to ask the landowner to pick these because it's an underground, so it's a root ball. So um, I'm going to go find the landowner of this certain area and just make sure that they're okay with it. But pig nuts, basically, I suppose they're an underground, kind of almost like a green hazelnut. They can have slightly sort of almost horseradishy radishy kind of flavours to them but some are stronger some are milder but I think a green hazelnut kind of green and nutty is quite a good way of describing them the leaves that you're looking out for kind of are very carroty quite close to the ground three thought sprigs out the ground they go straight up and almost out at 90 degrees so the stem goes straight out it's nice and thin and then the leaf kind of brackets almost go out at like 90 degrees and look like little carrot ones the identification is in digging it up really to make sure you'll have nice long thin roots and then followed by the little tuber at the end, which is right on the end of it, and that's the part that you want. And that then washed up and cleaned up tastes like, yeah, green hazelnut. Do you know why they're called pig nuts? It's a lovely name. Um, there's quite a few common names for them, and I presume it's to do with... Uh, Pigs to, liking them. Yeah, I would have thought it's something to do with that, and the fact mm. that it looks and has resemblance to nuts. Mm. It, they're part of the uh, Apaceae family, which is a carrot family, hence why the leaves look like that. Again, that's the family to... Not to avoid, but to learn and respect. 
it's a really good one to start learning for your attention to detail because you do have to be so precise and know all these little things so that's nice for that yeah it's fairly simple once you've got the landowner's permission you can dig it up to know it's that I, I would say it's important that you make sure that the tuber is attached to the root and to the rest of the plant because they like to grow around things like bluebells which are obviously poisonous and you do not want to be eating the bulbs of them that's a mistake that's uh that's the one to really just make sure as long as they're attached but they're a lovely little flavor are there any particular areas that they tend to grow in i was finding them a lot on the edge of i say quite damp woodland everywhere's damp at the moment so yeah on the edge of woodland really at the moment not too far in you're looking they're quite low to the ground so yeah look around your feet on the edge of paths when you're walking around the woods I think there's a, enough to be going on with for March. And, should keep you going. Yeah, indeed it should. And look forward to speaking to you again in April and finding out the results of the competition. That was Steve Thompson, the foraging chef, talking to Sue. On to our final news break now. The Cambridge Juice Company is selling its cans of cold brew coffee for half price at the moment, while stocks last. And on the subject of drinks, Cambridge wine merchants are doing online wine tastings. On the 21st of April, it's a virtual tour of Burgundy. You get six sample-sized bottles to taste, and the cost is £35. You can book by phone on Cambridge, 214-553. Transition Cambridge is an action group that wants to change our lives for the better, especially in the face of climate change, rising energy prices, and where we get our food from, growing our own and adapting rather than throwing away. They've featured numerous times on Flavour and Transition Cambridge co-founder Rob Hopkins will be giving a talk on Tuesday the 16th of March at 7.30pm and will be online due to Covid restrictions. It's titled Why the Next 10 Years Needs to Feel Like a Revolution of the Imagination. It's free but you'll need to book a ticket and to do that just go to transitioncambridge.org and you'll find a link on their homepage. If you're a regular to the Mill Road Winter Fair, the AGM will be held via Zoom on Tuesday the 23rd of March, where they will be planning for this year's fair and its fringe events. There is always an interesting range of food vendors setting up in Gwider Street car park during the fair, as well as along the length of the Mill Road Mile. So if you'd like to be involved, you can email info at millroadwinterfair.org. <laughs> And there is the music signalling time for the Twitter news. We have to pre-record our programmes now because of limited access to the Cambridge 105 radio studios as a result of the virus. So we can't bring you the latest tweets, but we can tell you that you can follow Flavour on Twitter, where we are at Flavour 105. And we're on Instagram too, also as Flavour 105. A few days ago, Sue managed to speak with Faraj Al Nasser, a refugee from Syria who's been in the UK for five years. He arrived with a desire to be a chef but no experience, so as to rekindle the emotions he felt over the meals he had with his extended family when he was growing up in Syria. I'd love to know how you got into your work as a chef. I grew up in a tradition family, a good mom, like she cooks. She's a great cook, so and I always tried to like help her in the kitchen, and she always said to me, like, no, boy, shouldn't be in the kitchen. But after the war took place, we had to leave Syria, and then 
and I had to also leave my family again in Asia, Turkey. I miss my family so much. I miss mom and I miss her food, that connection, the meal, the gathering on the table. And I felt I kind of cut off that connection, especially with her food. So like I should do her food, do her cooking, makes me feel like secure or more connected to her. Never thought to be a chef, but I always loved being in the kitchen and cooking for other people. I was studying and then I, I've been hosted with a really kind family in Cambridge. I've been with them for four years and I cooked for them some Syrian food. We always we all share meals and talk about food and brought us to decide, okay, I'm going to take a gap here and I'm going to try going to food industry. I moved to London. I was very lucky to have a cooking course in London at the Cooker's School in Great Portland Street. I tried to look for a job or get trained as a chef. And I was very lucky to have this opportunity to be trained at Atalangi in London. And after a couple of weeks, I've heard from Honey and Co. come for an interview. And I went and I, and I got the job. And I've been working, I worked for them for like a half a year. And then pandemic came, the COVID, and I had to go back to Cambridge last March. And I kind of felt I need to do something. I just can't sit, you know, I've been really busy working every day in the kitchen with cooking for hundreds of people and with great team. And I just started and I absolutely loved it. And then suddenly you've got free time and how I can use my time. It was in Cambridge, the first lockdown. I had a great relationship with the chef Alex at Vanderlyle. He is just a sweet, lovely chef. I volunteered there for a few weeks. I worked with them and it was one of my best experiences. I've worked in a kitchen I just learned so much from them and also what I love when we go work in the morning we're working cooking at lunchtime Chef Alex will cook for all of us and we all have to sit and eat it together and he will serve us and usually in a busy kitchen we have no time to sit and like I just love the community the, he just reminds me of home children just come dinner time it was beautiful yeah I went back to London worked three few months at Hunting Co but pressure wasn't very, very good. I had to come back to Cambridge again, cold, lockdown. Someone who is in my age, 25 years old, who wants to explore, wants to learn, wants to do something. It's been a very difficult time. My uh, my host mom in Cambridge, you, you cook for Cambridge. We worked on that. I managed to find a kitchen. So, okay, I'm just going to do a few weeks a week and let people just to taste food from home. Chef Alex, he kind of put my name on his newsletter, which was so kind of him. And I've got so many people via him and uh, people emailing me. I try to keep it more authentic from home as much as I can. Cooking is a fun part. I never worked hard in my life as I'm working now. I go from morning till evening and I like work, work, work. Because I'm only one person in the kitchen and I have to do everything from scratch. I'm trying to keep it like sustainable. I have zero waste till I have tried to get my vegetables from Cambridge Market to kind of support local community, but I'm really enjoying it. You work from heart. Just actually making this food, this actually would have a story behind it. Like the lebne, for example, I have to make the yogurt and uh, stir the yogurt for a few days, get kind of fermented and make it. So and I just remind me of my grandma when she used to also make it, and she told us stories while she's making it to keep us busy, and we used to watch her. I love that, the story of Labna. That sounds really nice. So how do people actually find out more about what the food is that you're making and how they can get it or do you deliver it? I managed to make a Facebook page called Faraja's Kitchen and just 
tables, send me a messages. Then I tell them like, if you can email me and I make the order. I'm working on to making websites and also I have Instagram, so I do get some messages there and I do share stories with food on my Instagram. Yeah, I've looked at your Instagram. Just say what that is. It's Faraj. Faraj Farag. F A R A J. F A R A G. I try to do once a week like a recipe. The other day I was making baklava and it reminded me of winter when my great aunt used to come us we all gathering in one room like a circle and a wooden fire in the middle and we have kind of we wrap ourselves in the blankets the thick blankets and we just keep chatting and gossiping and we are so close to each other warm and squeeze myself between them and then my mom would ask one of our girls to the sweet shop so we have in syria we usually we didn't really make dessert at home we, we cook at home but if the dessert shops by a generation which is 200 years old or 100 years old, they only open in winter time because it's very cold and you need the sweet to give you this energy. So my brother would do bring some baklava and we had a full treasure to our heart. Painful, losing your home. Every time when I think about my home, and I kind of, I mean, home is Cambridge now, also where I grew up, the smells of cooking and I miss grandma, aunt, cousin, mm. the neighborhood. I miss the air, I miss the water, I miss mm. the the speed shops and the the, the baker go get the bread in the morning and listen full from the we call it for wild shop. Oh, that's lovely. How much do you think people know about Syrian food? Each part of Syria has their own cuisines and own dishes. When I came to the UK and I was quite disappointed when I go to sometimes when I go to Middle Eastern restaurants, I just feel like I'm not getting the same food. I'm just I felt there's a lot. To, to, to show. It's not just hummus and kebab and uh, shawarma. I felt there's uh, more food being cooked at home and hasn't been brought out to, to tell people about it. And, and also, it's mainly vegan, mainly vegan or vegetarian, not very meaty and quite, it's very healthy, seasonal. This is how we used to eat. I grew up, we eat by season. I remember I used to get excited to see the black cherry in summer. Uh, because it only comes in summertime, or strawberry only comes in springtime. In September, we have the olive season. My mom used to go to the big market and buy and do her shopping in summer, and we do work on food to preserve the aubergine because we didn't have aubergine in winter, so we can have it in winter, but it's preserved in summer. So there's a lot of history being hidden uh, in Syrian food, and, uh, and there's a lot to, to tell and to talk about. My mom learned cooking via grandma recorded her like recipes and a cassette and she gave it to her in her wedding as a present. But unfortunately we lost them because of the wars. I mean I haven't seen my grandma in Aleppo for years and years and I, I love her. I have we have a great relationship. Who knows, you know, I mean the war now it has been for ten years. She is far away, I can't see her, like she can't come and I cannot go. She's quite old, so I thought, well I can keep from grandma if I'm not going to see her again. So I thought this is the best way, just have her recipes with me, have her voice, how to make uh, the jam or to make the soft barley. It's been six months, collect as much as I can recipes from her and record them and write them down. And I thought it would be good if I can tell people about it. Are there any Syrian recipe books that you've come across? I would like to maybe make a cookbook. <laughs> I don't know how that's going to happen. 
I enjoy more the story of the recipe than than just like the recipe you just do it. I like to tell people what is actually behind this recipe and what we have and how we eat it. And some dishes we only cook it when we have guests, family to try it. Are you doing food nearly every day or? Do yeah, I'm working actually five days a week. In the beginning, I was working every day, but then I and I found it just too much. Like kind of got someone to help me with delivery. I work from Tuesday through Saturday. In terms of food being delivered, is that just in the sort of Cambridge area? So I got customers actually like outside of Cambridge, but I cannot deliver that far. So they have to come and pick up. For example, I have a friend, she lives in South Milwaukee. She told her village and then they made an order and she came, picked up for all of them and she delivered to them. Some people like in Water Beach or in Falburn, Boston. Cambridge area, of course. Are you going to be carrying this through? I sincerely hope so. I'm working now on spring menus. I, I try to keep it seasonal from local products. So far, so good. I'm going to keep it until see what it's going to lead to. It gives me so much pleasure to cook for people, even I cannot see their faces sometimes. So I'm going to keep it, and I hope I would love to have my own space in the future. Who, who, who wouldn't? So far, um, I'm happy to, to focus what I'm doing, taking it slowly, doing well. That's brilliant. Oh, Farage, that's such a lovely story, and I wish you all the best for the future. That was Faraj Al Nasser. You can follow him on Instagram, Faraj Faraj, spelt F A R J F A R G, on Facebook, Faraj's Kitchen, an inspiring story. Green onions signalling the start of our jobs section, and there are a large number of jobs available at the moment. We'll give you an outline, but do check for details on the relevant restaurant's website or contact them directly. Midsummer House is looking for people to join their front of house team. Send your CV to David St. Andre. Their address is restaurant.manager at midsummerhouse.co.uk. Jack's Gelato need an ice cream production chef. A second chef is needed at the Hole in the Wall in Little Wilbraham. The Dog and Duck in Linton is looking for a head chef. Applicants must have a minimum of two years' experience as a head chef. A senior chef is required at Newnham College in Cambridge. And if it's part-time work that you're looking for, then Japas in Brookside needs a part-time sushi chef at weekends. There are two vacancies at the Gonville Hotel in Gonville Place, a commie chef for which one year's experience is needed, and a chef de partie in the pastry section, uh, that's needed too. And for this one, you should have a proven track record as a chef de partie or demi-chef de partie with pastry experience. The Olive Grove in Lensfield Road needs a chef de partie. And finally, two chain restaurants need staff. Wagamamas are looking for a chef in Regent Street and a grill chef is needed at Gourmet Burger Kitchen, also on Regent Street. And that takes us to the end of our programme for today. Don't forget that we are here on alternate Saturdays at 12pm and of course we will also be available by podcast early next week. Coming up next on Cambridge 105 Radio this evening is Strummers and Dreamers with Les Ray featuring the St. Berrien Sessions. 
At 9 o'clock, it's Sue Marchant's selection, as Sue chats with Helen Meissner about her dance single with Jackie Weaver, and Kate Rusby prepares for a celebration of cover versions. And finally, at 11pm, it's the Kip of the Cat show, with Greg Butler and guests picking out more from their favourite 78 blues records. But that's all from us. We'll be back on the 27th of March with lots more food and drink news, jobs and features. But until then, goodbye. 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 Goodbye.